Cool. Well, it is exciting. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Bodie Sanders. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at City Church, and uh, I think I might actually be the only pastor here today. And I was talking with Cody um, um, before service, and I was like, bro, I think it might just be me and you here today as, as a staff. Like, what's going on? Who in the world made this decision? Like, I, nobody should ever leave us in charge, I, honestly. Um, <laughs> and so, but I, I am like really, really excited to continue our Love Lies series. In this series, um, our goal has been to show uh, some of the holes in our cultural understanding around things like love, sex, marriage, and singleness. And it's so easy for any generation to fall into the trap of thinking that we have it all figured out, that we've advanced the ball down the field at a far superior click than any other generation before us. But that's not always true. Yes, we've advanced, but that doesn't mean that, that we are any better than any other generation when it comes to our idea of emotional health, especially when it, it, when it um, is around this idea or topic of, of relationship. And in fact, depending on which side you might want to argue, some could say that we have actually declined in our understanding of emotional health and what it looks like to be in healthy relationship. Again, Again, if you want to argue from a cultural moment kind of standpoint that we find ourselves in, then you, one could say, man, we're killing it right now. We are, we are doing pretty good. But if you take a different stance, if you um, look at it maybe even from a biblical standpoint and look at our culture and the way that, that we view this idea of relationship, then, um, man, we're not doing as good as we like to think that we are. Um, it's a pretty popular belief in our culture today to think that the biblical view of, of marriage or the biblical view of relationship or just really a biblical view of how we carry ourselves in this world could be considered restrictive. Our culture would say that a biblical view of life is a restrictive kind of life. But I feel like we've argued this point from this stage, myself and the others who get to wear this exact same face mic, and it hit me as I was thinking about this this morning that um, too many of us wear the exact same face mic. I'm, I'm not a germaphobe, uh, but I don't like other people's spittle this close to my mouth, right? Like, so uh, it's just kind of gross. We need to buy some new face mics, Cody. Like, we all just need our own, okay? I know they're expensive, but we, we can make it happen. Uh, but any of us would argue that it's the exact opposite. In fact, God's vision for our lives is not restrictive at all. God's vision for our lives, whether it's our lives just in the world or our lives within relationship, whether those are friendships or, or even more, even up onto dating and marriage, God's idea and plan for our lives is our flourishing. God wants to see us thrive. And so he has set up boundaries because he knows the absolute best way. So I get a pretty fun topic to talk with you guys about today. This topic that I'm going to get that I get to talk to you about is like a very it finds its roots in a very ancient, um, like 2,500-year-old ancient story. Um, and and it's, a, it's an idea that is used to, um, at the beginning of a relationship, to denote good or bad vibes. It's a, it's a saying that is said in the middle of a relationship to, you guessed it, denote 
good or bad vibes. And it's also one that's said at the end of a relationship to denote good or bad vibes. And this saying is this, I found the one or this idea of the one. Um, let's, let's see it in conversation kind of played out. Guy A, and we can call him Brian. Hey, bro, how was your date last night, man? Like, give me the deets. What, what was it like with this new girl that you're dating? And Guy B, the one who went on said date, we can call him Brad. Brad says something along the lines of this, bro, it was amazing, man. We clicked, we vibed, things were meshing. Like, dude, I don't want to put too much pressure on this, but I actually think she might be the one for me. Or in another conversation, a few months down the road, um, girl A, we can call her Susan. Susan, so how are things going with Brad? And, and as she speaks, she's speaking to somebody who will call her Marty. And, um, and, and Marty, um, I, and, um, Marty will, will say this, the one who has now gone on several dates with Brad, right, um, is like, man, you know, I've, I, girl, I just really wanted this to work out. Like, so I've given it time, but, but we just don't mesh. We don't click. We don't vibe. There's like his breath is weird or there's something off about him. Like I, I just don't think he is the one. This idea of the one is an elusive idea. This one idea of the one whose roots are far surpasses the, the big and small screens where, where we find star-crossed lovers that we can't help but root for because, man, they are perfect for each other. So why can't they just get together? I, I want to date myself uh, with a couple of movies from my formative years, The Notebook and Sweet Home Alabama. Anybody? Uh, like, they're great, right? They're, those are such great movies. In fact, I was thinking about Sweet Home Alabama. It might be my favorite of the two, um, and, but... I was thinking about this movie, and I was like, I wonder if you could actually put lightning rods in sand and make uh, glass crystals. Like, anybody want to try that with me the next time a storm comes through? Sweet. I got you, bro. We're going to talk after service. All right. Uh, but, but no, I, like these, this idea of these two people who are going through life seemingly fine, but really in reality, what they want us to, to believe is that at a deep soul level, they are hopelessly lost until they, they find that missing piece, that, that other one that, that can um, complete them, if you will. This idea of the one, though it seems innocent, and if I'm being honest, it's kind of romantic, right? Like the idea of the one is a little bit romantic. romantic. It's actually a very slippery slope. There are so many pitfalls to this way of thinking, and there are at least a few questions that we should be asking, especially for the Jesus people in the room this morning. There's one main question that we should be asking. Is this idea of the one even biblical? Is it even a biblical concept that, that we've adopted in our culture? And man, if, if you've based your uh, relational theology around the idea of the one, I, I am so sorry to burst your bubble. But the answer to that question, is it biblical, is absolutely no. It's not biblical. In fact, this is the, the thing that I said that we would come back to here in just a moment. I got to geek out a little bit in research for this message this morning and trying to research the roots of where this idea of the one comes from. And it actually comes from an old school homie Greek philosopher that we know as Plato. 
Plato um, lived about nearly 400 years before Jesus walked on the earth. And, and yet this idea that he gives us is like living on to this day. Um, so Plato wrote a literary work of art that is called the Symposium. And in the Symposium, uh, Plato uh, introduces us to a character named Aristophanes. And now Aristophanes, is gone, he is attending a symposium. And what a symposium? symposium is, is a party after the party. It's an after party, except for um, the only people that are allowed to go are dudes. Doesn't sound like the funnest after party to me, right? Um, but especially, <laughs> never mind. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. I typically go off the rails in second service, and y'all are getting it in first service. Um, so Aristophanes is at a symposium, and at a symposium, the guys are together, and they're drinking wine. The wine is flowing, and, in the, and the entire time, each dude in the room gets a chance to tell a story of eros love or erotic love. And so the, the stories are being told, and there are a bunch of characters introduced, and when it comes time for Aristophanes to begin to share his story at the symposium, he says, dudes, I got to be honest with you. My story is a little less love and a little more tragedy. He then poses the thought or the idea that, that at one time human beings weren't actually as we are today. In fact, we were actually connected. We were uh, uh, this kind of like humanoid type creature um, with two heads, four arms, and four legs. There were some male and male, some female and female. And then there were these androgynous creatures that were both male and female. Now, these androgynous creatures, although they, they kind of looked clunky. I mean, if you can imagine the picture, they were connected back to back in, in, in art is how they are um, portrayed. And so they kind of look clunky, but Aristophanes argued that they were actually kind of athletic. They were pretty athletic because they moved in this sort of circular cartwheel motion. And so they were really fast and they could do all sorts of great, awesome things, athletically speaking. And so these androgynous creatures got this idea that they would climb Mount Olympus and go hang out with the gods for a little bit. And for some reason, apparently this upset the Greek god Zeus. And so Zeus is really mad at these androgynous creatures and he decides that he's going to wipe them out. And then just before he sends the lightning bolt down, we've all seen Hercules, right? Like, so he's got the lightning bolts. Before he sends the lightning bolts um, down, he realizes, wait, if I wipe out this race, then I'll have nobody to worship me. That's a pretty awesome lowercase g God, right? Like if I kill everybody, who's going to worship me, right? Um, and so he then decides like, okay, instead of killing them, here's what I'll do. I'll split them in half. And the reason for splitting them in half is I'll gain more worshipers, right? Like I immediately double the amount of people who are worshiping me. Secondly, they'll only be half as smart, half as athletic, half as this, half. And so they won't have, we won't have to worry about them trying to get up the mountain any longer. And so, and secondly, for us, what are we left with? At this moment, and Aristophanes argues that now the gods can go about doing their business because these once androgynous connected individuals are now left to spend the rest of their lives searching 
for their other half, their one that completes them. And so in our searching, the gods can just do whatever they want. And here's the thing, guys, with this entire story, it was actually meant to be just a joke. Just a joke, a form of comedy, if not some tragic form of comedy. And yet, over the centuries, what happens is, is it nearly becomes doctrinal for so many of us because of the human condition for us to adopt story and make it our own. And so, this idea of the one is absolutely not biblical. I want to take a moment just for a few minutes to address uh, a couple of different relationships in the room. I want to talk for a minute to those who are in the room who are in the dating game. Now, my wife and I have shared from this stage um, many times now, for those of you who don't know my wife, it's Pastor Rachel. Um, uh, My wife and I have shared from this stage many times that we were babies when we got married. I was 21, she was 19. For goodness sakes, guys, I was 17 and she was 15 when our relationship began. So for me to say that I have basically zero experience in the dating game is like the understatement of a lifetime. It's the absolute understatement of a lifetime, but I do have family members and friends that I have watched who are in the dating game, and I have had the opportunity to pastor singles who are longing to not be single, and so I guess you could say that secondhand knowledge on a subject is better than absolutely no knowledge whatsoever, and so for a moment, I want to share with those of you who are in a dating relationship a couple of of tips or thoughts some things that I might say to you. If you're in a dating relationship, number one, don't make it too difficult on the other. Don't make it too difficult on the other. Oftentimes, because we've been conditioned by the culture, culture around us, we tend to set impossibly high standards. This at least partial, is at least partially to do with our boy Plato and, and his character Aristophanes and their idea of the one or the missing piece. And I'm not setting up here and telling you not to have standards. In fact, I think that myself and the others who get to share the face mic, the ones who set up here on a weekly basis, um, would tell you, yes, have standards when it comes to dating, but, but also don't be stupid. <laughs> don't be stupid about it because of point number two, and we'll exhaust a few more thoughts. And point number two, we need to realize our own inadequacy. You need to realize your own inadequacy. Brother and sister, I don't want you to take offense to this, but you ain't perfect. You're not even close. Um, I love you enough to tell you that. You are not even close to perfect. And if you aren't perfect, how in the actual heck can you expect somebody else to be? Don't let Plato and Aristophanes rob you of something great because you're waiting for the other perfect half to make you, your, make you whole. This, there's just literally no such thing as this. Again, it was a joke. You aren't perfect No one's perfect. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, speaks on John Tierney's classic humor article, Picky, 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 as saying this. After scanning the extraordinarily unrealistic personal ads where the kinds of partners wanted almost never really exist, Tierney decided that young adults were increasingly afflicted with what he called the flawmatic. It's an inner voice, a little wiring device inside of the brain that instantly spots a fatal flaw in any potential mate. 
Tyranny offers a few reasons for this device, but more often than not, he concluded this device gives us an excuse to stay alone and therefore safe. This flaw is more prevalent in our lives than we may even know. We build up guardrails and barriers around our true self to thwart the advances of someone possibly great, all in the name of self-preservation. And basically what they are saying is we've put up walls against vulnerability because that word alone scares the crap out of us. Yet, opening up and being fully known in a relationship is one of the best ways to move any relationship forward, friendship or otherwise, it doesn't matter. Yet our culture would tell you that this is exactly what you're supposed to do. Kick the tires, spend countless hours and endless emotional trauma test driving until you find the most compatible person to stick it out with, or at least long enough for a more compatible person to come along. Singles who are actually searching in this room or looking with the intent of marriage, don't make it too difficult. Realize that you aren't perfect, that nobody is perfect, and then have just boatloads of grace for the people around you. And and pray to God that they have boatloads of grace for you because we all need a little bit of grace from one another. Married's in the room. I don't really need to talk to you. You're good. That's a lie. Um, I have more than 30 to 65 minutes of things to say to you, but we'll start with this one. Don't buy the lie. If you're married in this room today, don't buy the lie. Yeah, you fell head over heels and eros love with that person, but a few years in or a whole lot of years in, it's getting tough, and that passionate eros love has kind of faded. He's a bit more pudgy now. Right? Um, And so, like, what is this? Um, We've had a couple of kids, and now she's just emotionally not the same any longer, right? Like, we've all experienced some of this. but, but um, it's excuse after excuse after excuse. And before long, it's not too difficult a task for the lie to creep in that says maybe they aren't the one. Maybe they aren't the one and I missed it. And if I don't course correct my mistake, I will be ha- unhappy for the rest of my life. But here's the reality. To jump straight to the punchline of this message today, and if you want to get up and leave after this, that's fine, because this is the point of the message. There is no right person. There's no right person. Duke University ethics professor Stanley Hauerwas famously made this point. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. And even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom we are married. And if you are married in this room or if you've been married for any time at all, you know that quote to be stingingly true. 
The proximity of marriage is like a mirror to our flaws. And in every season of life, we are changing and growing and not staying the same. And, and we shouldn't want to stay the same, right? Like we should want to grow. We should want to change. But what happens so often with growth and change is, is pain comes in growth and change. And if we don't allow that pain to, to, to form us more into Christ and, and use our spouse as a mirror, then it is going to be very easy for us to say, I got to check out of this. I didn't sign up for this. You aren't the person for me. So what should we do then? If we aren't to believe the lie, then we should lean into the truth. Lean into truth. This, perfect, this person is imperfect just like you are imperfect, and yet the beauty or the potential beauty is still there to be put on display for all the world to see. Marriage is two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability and love. You see, peeps, this idea of the one is a myth at its simplest form, a joke at its truest form, and it is one of the most deceptive tools of our enemy to rob us of true biblical relationship and marriage. There is no such thing as the one. If this idea of the one isn't real, what then should we as believers in Jesus Christ, what should we then focus on? If, if there's not an actual right person for me out there, then, then what should I actually be focused on then? And, and the answer is this. I love exactly how, uh, how John Mark Comer puts it. He says that we need to reverse engineer the idea of the one, wrong quote, sorry guys, I can actually see the screen right there. Um, I, I, we'll get there in a minute, all right, cool, yeah, all right, cool, thumbs up, we'll get there. We need to reverse engineer this idea of the one. We've already referenced the creation story um, in this series several times, but how could we not reference it again when in order to pursue what is best, we have to look back to creational intent. So in the beginning, it's all good and perfect, and Adam and Eve are created, and then God says it's very good, right? And then Genesis three happens. Eve is tempted by a serpent. Instead of ruling over creation, she is ruled by the creation and the created order is then overturned and sin wreaks havoc on all of humanity, not the least of which is affected. The first marriage is now in full conflict. There's anger. There's blaming. And dudes, I want to I just stop and talk to my men in the room today. Can we break the curse of Adam for, love, for the love of Pete. Adam was there with Eve in the garden as the serpent tempted her, man. And, 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 and when God comes and he looks for Adam and Adam is hiding, he says, what did you do? And he's like, I'm naked. I was afraid and I didn't want you to see me like this. And like, God's like, did you eat the fruit? And he's like, the woman you gave me. She made me. She made me eat the fruit. Man, quit blaming, bro. You were there. Guys, can we grow up in relationship? Like, like boys, it's time to become men, right? Like, grow up just a little bit. Stop blaming your spouse for you. And, and wives, similarly, like, like, let's grow up and stop blaming the other. But instead, let's work together to make our marriage all that God wants it to be. So in the first marriage, there's anger, blaming, distance, regret, and so goes the story. Is this, now, this is now a part of what happens in basically all relationships. We all suffer from the garden tragedy, but there's good news. Jesus' agenda is to fix it. 
Through Jesus, as we read in the opening lines of the book of John, these opening lines are intended to be a sort of echo of the opening lines of the Bible and the creation story. We are being made new. John 1, verses 1 through 5 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is saying that a new creation is coming to birth in and through the word, and his name is Jesus. This idea of new creation, but as we know, the creation process, right, it takes time. This idea of creation takes time time inside of us. Paul speaks to this idea of new creation several times in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. If you are a follower of Jesus in the room today, you are a new creation. The old is gone, The new has come. You were made in the image of God. Sin fractured that image, but it's still there. And the spirit of Jesus is at work in your life, recreating you moment by moment, day by day. As Paul would say, from one degree of glory to the next. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is what theologians call sanctification in our lives. And don't let that, that big word scare you. Um, it's just the creative process of our creator. The, the new creation process. And we are being remade into who we were always meant to be. The real me, the real you. To God, our identity is rooted in who we are becoming. Not in what we have done or who we are now. But in who we are becoming. Into who we are always, were always created to be. John Mark Comer says this, and now we can pull up the quote. In theology, this is called eschatological realism, which is a way of saying you are in the process of becoming who you really are. You are holy, and you are in the process of becoming holy. You are pure, and you are in the process of becoming pure. You are blameless, and you are in the process of becoming blameless. God starts with the end in mind. And then he works backwards. Some of you may or may not know this, but a couple of months ago, Rachel and I bought a new-to-us home. Um, Now, when we first went to look at this new-to-us home, we walked in the front door and the smell, like, literally slaps you right across the face. It was rank. Okay, it was so gross, just even the smell alone. And as we stepped through the front door and onto the carpet in the living room, the amount of urine stains that I just pray were pet stains, um, were, it was just insane. The, like the carpet, I think, was gray at one time, but it was mostly black. Um, and, and we just walked through this, this house, and, and honestly, inside of me, I was like, I don't want to love this home, okay? Like, I don't want 
want this layout to work for us because this place is nasty. Just years of neglect and, and bad repairs and all the things. But as we toured the rooms and, and all the space and everything, it just became increasingly clear to us that, that this house actually fits us really well. And if I'm being really honest with you, as we were walking through it, we, we just started to get this vision for what this house actually could be. And so we purchased it. We made the purchase. In fact, most of the houses that Rachel and I have, have lived in over the course of 18 years of marriage have been houses that were in a little bit of disrepair. And, and we've always just been able to see the beauty of what could be or what will be in the home. And, and we get to step into it and start to put our hands on it and do the work inside the home. And so now with this house, two months later, I can honestly say, I wish I had pictures. I don't. Sorry. Um, I can honestly say it is a work of art. We started with a vision of the end in mind, and then we worked backwards from there to start the repair process. And what it looks like today is just the, the beautiful picture of what it always had the possibility of being God. Just like our house, God sees who you are going to be, and he works backwards from there over the period of an actual lifetime. And this guys, blows up this idea of the one. In relationships, in marriage, we are two broken people coming together to find healing in Jesus. Like I said a moment ago, marriage is like a mirror for all of our flaws, and this is a good thing. It's intended to be that way. It's a vehicle for sanctification. It exposes all the places that we need the Spirit's work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Jesus has a vision for our future glory, and everything that he does in our lives moves us toward that goal. When Michelangelo uh, was asked how he carved his magnificent David, his reply was said to have been, I just looked inside the marble and took away the bits that weren't David. That's pretty cool, right? Like I just looked inside the marble and I took away the bits that weren't David. So first things first are you surrendered to your own sanctification, your own process of becoming? Are you committed in relationships, submitted to the wisdom of those around you and searching inward to all the spirit desires to do in you? Is your lens bent more towards finding the one or is your lens bent towards becoming the one? Not the one for someone else, but the one that God has always intended you to be. And then when dating, are you looking for a finished statue or a wonderful piece of marble? Let that set in for a moment. In dating, are you looking for an already finished statue, that perfect thing? Or are you looking for a beautiful piece of marble? We must be able to look inside of the other and see what God is doing and then be excited about being a part of the process. Married people in the room with a Christian vision of marriage. Here's what it means to fall in love. I see you. I see all of you. Your flaws, strengths, and everything in between. And I get a glimpse in all of that of the person God is creating. And that excites me. And I want to partner with you in that becoming. The point of marriage isn't to find our missing piece. It's to help each other become all that God intended us to be. Our future real selves. We push and we pull each other to that end. And lastly, before I read uh, to close today, a really awesome C.S. Lewis quote. 
Lastly is this, are we willing to be clay in the hands of the potter? Like, like I think about that, those passages of Scripture from Jeremiah 18 or even some of Paul in Romans 9, this idea of being clay in the hands of the potter. It's, it, it's great lyrically, right? Like I'm in the potter's hands and he's molding me. And, but guys, I've said it like this for a really long time. Being clay is super, super uncomfortable. I have a background in construction and... Um, Several years ago, uh, my brothers and I were working on a, an elderly couple's home in the Grand Lake area. And um, the, the wife, um, she wa- ha- actually happened to be a potter. And she had some of her stuff set up in the garage. And, and it looked really interesting to me. And so uh, one day I just walked in. And I was like, hey, can I watch you work for just a minute? And she was like, oh, absolutely, for sure. We were actually um, doing some tile work in what would be her studio at one point. And so she was like, yeah, you can absolutely watch me. And she began to grab this lump of clay. And she would sprinkle a little bit of water on it. And she started to just like wring it, like just squeeze it, the pressure that that clay went through. And she did this process for uh, the right amount of time to work out the flaws and work out the impurity in the clay. And then when she finally got that done, she took that lump of clay and she poof and threw it down on the wheel. I mean, just a violent thud. Are we willing to be clay in the hands of the potter? Clay is not, being clay is not always fun. And, and once she threw the clay down on the wheel, she began to spin the wheel. And, and the wheel started spinning at, spinning at dizzying rates. And she then began to take her hands and her thumbs and start to press in to the clay. And it was just like a beautiful process. Now, all of a sudden, like, like things are moving. I'm starting to see what's happening. And then a bloop and a blip in the clay. And she takes it and just crumbles it all back down. And then she starts the process over and over again. Eventually, one of my brothers came and slapped me on the back of the head and was like, hey, you need to get to work, bro. And so I left. And and a few days later, I went out into the garage to continue the work in my room in the garage. And I noticed sitting on a shelf that lump of clay that she had started with just a few days before that she had beaten, that she had spun, that she had started, and then she had collapsed and then restarted, had become this beautiful, just cylindrical and wavy, just, just wonderful vase. The process of shaping and molding is not always comfortable, but the end result is always beautiful. Are we willing to be clay in the hands of the potter? C.S. Lewis once wrote, If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. Would you stand with me this morning? When it comes to relationships, dating or married, 
I can honestly say to you that I have poured through Scripture, and I can tell you that, that God is far less concerned about who you are going to be with, and he is so much more concerned with who you are becoming. So let's not give in to the, the, the myth that there is this one out there for us, but instead let's give in to the reality that God wants to make us who we are becoming. Make us the one that he has always desired us to be, shaped and formed into the image of Jesus Christ. You guys probably received uh, your communion elements when you came in. This is something that we do each and every week. We go back to the table to remember what our Lord and Savior has done for us. And as I think about communion and I think about this idea of sanctification, this idea of daily becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ laid down his life for his bride. He laid down his life for the other. May we be more like Jesus. May it not be about us. On the night that he was betrayed, Scripture tells us that Jesus gathered in an upper room with his closest friends. And um, at, at supper time, he took the bread and he lifted that bread to heaven and he blessed it and he broke it and he passed it around the table and he said, Take, eat, this is my body that is broken for you. And we take the body of our Lord and Savior this morning. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup, it represents my blood, blood of a new covenant, no longer would you have to sacrifice bulls or rams or pigeons or, or any of the likes. My blood doesn't simply cover. My blood washes you white as snow. My sacrifice once and for all. May we take the blood of our Lord and Saviors. And for the next few minutes, can we just sit in a moment of worship as we remember what Jesus has done. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your blood poured out. We thank you that you went to the cross on our behalf. You died the death that we deserved so that we could have life and have life in communion with our heavenly Father. Jesus, we thank you for resurrection because now we know this isn't the end. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. Father, I pray over each and every one of us in this room 
that we would not give ourselves over to myths and lies, deception, especially when it comes to this idea of the one, God. But instead, I pray that we would be willing to go through the work that you would want us to go through to constantly be becoming the one that you see us becoming. God, I pray that within each and every one of us, there is a burning desire for every morning that we wake up to look more like Jesus than the day before. Because that is the ultimate prize. That's the ultimate aim. That's the ultimate goal. It's to look and be like Jesus in the world around us, in our relationships, whether at home or at work. God, may we be more like Jesus each and every day. Holy Spirit, this is a, a, an ask and a desire that we know even at our best of attempts, we are woefully unqualified to do. And so we need you. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you give us the strength that we need to pursue Christ's likeness, to always be becoming the one God intended us and intends for us to become. And Jesus, we give you thanks, and it's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, City Church, thank you for listening to me for a few minutes. That's all I've got for you. Just a quick reminder, Cody mentioned this during our announcement time, but on cc.guide, um, it's not lost on us that as we go through a series like this, Love Lies, where we are like tackling some pretty um, hot button issues that, that, man, you might have questions. You might have some, some thoughts of your own. And so we have a resource page there. Um, maybe you're in here in this room and you're going through like a crisis of your own in a relationship or a marriage and, and, and you want somebody to talk to, man, all of the information that you need is right there on cc.guide. And like, listen, there is no shame and reaching out, like, in fact, that is very admirable and honorable because you're, you're doing the work, right? Right? So I want to invite our prayer team to come down. If you're on our prayer team in the room this morning, if you're on staff or an elder here at City Church, come down to the front and just want to open up a time of prayer. If you need prayer for anything, then we've got beautiful people who would love to pray with you. Um, again, that's all I got. Um, so let's end with our mission statement and go live it out wherever you are. Be the gospel. Love you guys. I should have known